Well, hello again. Uh, this week, I'm going to read out uh, just a short little bit from Philip Roth's 1997 novel, American Pastoral. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone that uh, this is a work of uh, great genius, and uh, if you haven't read it, I very much recommend you do so. Uh, just to give a brief bit of background... Uh, it's basically it's the story of um of a guy called Seymour Swede Lvov Swede being his uh his nickname uh, because he looks so uh Swedish blonde uh, he's uh, although he's originally Jewish uh, but he's very uh, assimilated and you know that's a, an indication of, of that fact um so he's a very successful assimilated Jewish American. Uh, he's an all-American sort of guy, um, but during the 60s, 70s, uh, his wonderful life is, uh, is ruined by, by history, by, um, the intrusion of all of the political and social and economic turmoil of, of those years in American life, uh, into his own personal life, including the um radicalization of his daughter Mary who uh becomes a a domestic terrorist and the novel is narrated by Philip uh, by Philip Roth's a frequent alter ego slash narrator um Nathan Zuckerman and Zuckerman is is the one speaking so to speak uh and he is uh very interested in the Swedes uh, story and this is quite a a nice little summation of uh, of the uh, of that central idea of the novel and uh, I shall stop waffling now and uh, just get started uh, if I can find where where was I uh, ah here we are okay. And there I was thinking again of the Swede, of the of the. Uh, you know what? I'm going to start that again. <laughs> and there I was thinking again of the Swede, of the notorious significance that an outlaw daughter had thrust on him and his family during the Vietnam War. A man whose discontents were barely known to himself, awakening in middle age to the horror of self-reflection. All that normalcy interrupted by murder. All the small problems any family expects to encounter, exaggerated by something so impossible ever to reconcile. The disruption of the anticipated American future that was simply to have unrolled out of the solid American past, out of each generation's getting smarter, smarter for knowing the inadequacies and limitations of the generations before, out of each new generation's breaking away from the parochialism a little further, out of the desire to go the limit in America with your rights, forming yourself as an ideal person who gets rid of the traditional Jewish habits and attitudes, who frees himself of the pre-America insecurities and the old constraining obsessions so as to live unapologetically as an equal among equals. And then the loss of the daughter, the fourth American generation, a daughter on the run who was to have been the perfected image of himself as he had been the perfected image of his father 
and his father the perfected image of his father's father. The angry, rebarbative, spitting-out daughter, with no interest whatever in being the next successful Lvov, flushing him out of hiding as if he were a fugitive, initiating the Swede into the displacement of another America entirely, the daughter and the decade blasting to smithereens his particular form of utopian thinking, the plague America infiltrating the Swede's castle and there infecting everyone. The daughter who transports him out of the longed-for American pastoral and into everything that is its antithesis and its enemy, into the fury, the violence and the desperation of the counter-pastoral, into the indigenous American berserk. The old intergenerational give-and-take of the country that used to be, when everyone knew his role and took the rules dead seriously, the acculturating back and forth that all of us here grew up with, the ritual post-immigrant struggle for success turning pathological in, of all places, the gentleman farmer's castle of our super-ordinary Swede. A guy stacked like a deck of cards for things to unfold entirely differently. In no way prepared for what is going to hit him. How could he, with all his carefully calibrated goodness, have known that the stakes of living obediently were so high. Obedience is embraced to lower the stakes. A beautiful wife, a beautiful house, runs his business like a charm, handles his handful of an old man well enough. He was really living it out, his version of paradise. This is how successful people live. They're good citizens, they feel lucky, they feel grateful. God is smiling down on them. There are problems, they adjust. And then everything changes and it becomes impossible. Nothing is smiling down on anybody. And who can adjust then? Here is someone not set up for life's working out poorly, let alone for the impossible. But who is set up for the impossible that is going to happen? Who is set up for tragedy and the incomprehensibility of suffering? Nobody. The tragedy of the man not set up for tragedy. That is every man's tragedy. He kept peering in from the outside at his own life. The struggle of his life was to bury this thing. But how could he? Never in his life had occasion to ask himself, why are things the way they are? Why should he bother when the way they were was always perfect? Why are things the way they are? The question to which there is no answer. And up till then, he was so blessed, he didn't even know the question existed. After all the effervescent strain of resuscitating our class's mid-century innocence, together a hundred ageing people recklessly turning back the clock to a time when time's passing was a matter of indifference, with the afternoon's exhilarations finally coming to an end, I began to contemplate the very thing that must have baffled the Swede till the moment he died. How had he become history's plaything? History, American history, the stuff you read about in books and study in school, had made its way out to tranquil, untrafficked old Rimrock, New Jersey, to countryside where it had not put in an appearance that was notable since Washington's army twice wintered in the highlands adjacent to Morristown. History, which had made no drastic impingement on the daily life of the local populace since the Revolutionary War, wended its way back out to, the, to these cloistered hills and, improbably, with all its predictable unforeseenness, 
broke helter-skelter into the orderly household of the Seymour Lvovs and left the place in a shambles. People think of history in the long term, but history, in fact, is a very sudden thing. In earnest, right then and there, while swaying with joy to that out-of-date music, I began to try to work out for myself what exactly had shaped a destiny unlike any imagined for the famous Weequahic three lettermen back when this music and its sentimental exhortation was right to the point, when the Swede, his neighbourhood, his city and his country were in their exuberant heyday, at the peak of confidence, inflated with every illusion born of hope. With joy Helpern once again close in my arms and quietly sobbing to hear the old pop tune enjoying enjoining all of us sixty odd year olds dream and they might come true. I lifted the Swede up onto the stage. That evening at Vincent's, for a thousand different excellent reasons, he could not bring himself to ask me to do this. For all I know he had no intention of asking me to do this. To get me to write a story may not have been why he was there at all. Maybe it was only why I was there. Basketball was never like this. He'd invoked in me when I was a boy, as he did in hundreds of other boys, the strongest fantasy I had of being someone else. But to wish oneself into another's glory as boy or as man is an impossibility untenable on psychological grounds if you are not a writer, and on aesthetic grounds if you are. To embrace your hero in his destruction, however, to let your hero's life occur within you when everything is trying to diminish him, to imagine yourself into his bad luck, to implicate yourself not in his mindless ascendancy when he is the fixed point of your adulation, but in the bewilderment of his tragic fall, well, that's worth thinking about. So then, I am out there on the floor with joy and I am thinking of the Swede and of what happened to his country in a mere 25 years between the triumphant days at wartime Weequahic High and the explosion of his daughter's bomb in 1968 of that mysterious, troubling, extraordinary historical transition. I'm thinking of the 60s and of the disorder occasioned by the Vietnam War of how certain families lost their kids and certain families didn't, and how the Seymour Lvovs were one of those that did. Families full of tolerance and kindly, well-intentioned liberal goodwill, and theirs were the kids who went on a rampage, or went to jail, or disappeared underground, or fled to Sweden or Canada. I'm thinking of the Swedes' great fall, and of how he must have imagined that it was founded on some failure of his own responsibility. There is where it must begin. It doesn't matter if he was the cause of anything. He makes himself responsible anyway. He has been doing that all his life, making himself unnaturally responsible, keeping under control not just himself, but whatever else threatens to be uncontrollable, giving his all to keep his world together. Yes, the cause of the disaster has for him to be a transgression, How else would the Swede explain it to himself? It has to be a transgression, a single transgression, even if it is only he who identifies it as a transgression. The disaster that befalls him begins in a failure of of his responsibility, as he imagines it. But what could that have been?
And that is that. Uh, apologies for some of the stuttering and false starts and all the rest of it. Uh, probably also mispronounced wee quick hi. Um, but uh, I hope you agree. It's a thrilling writing. And uh, if you haven't uh, had the opportunity to explore Nathan Zuckerman's meditation upon the life of Seymour Swede-Lavov, then I hope you uh, are inspired to do so soon. The Revenge of History and the Impossibility of Escape from History. Something to think about. See you later.